Let's turn together to Ephesians chapter number 5 this morning. Ephesians chapter number 5. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 18 through 21. Ephesians 5 verses 18 through 21. And our subject this morning is worship in the Spirit. Worship in the Spirit. Ephesians 5 beginning there in verse 18. And we'll read down through verse 21. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. All worship that is truly Christ-like, or we can use the term Christian, must be in the person and the work of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. All worship that is truly Christian must be in the person and the work of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Paul writes to those who are truly the beneficiaries of the atoning work of Christ. We are, in fact, beneficiaries of his death and his resurrection. We are beneficiaries in our regeneration. We are beneficiaries in the transforming power of the Spirit. And we know that apart from him coming to us through the Spirit, we would not have a true saving knowledge of Christ. We are truly beneficiaries because we are partakers in new life. He has provided that new life through his death. Now that's glorious enough to know that we are truly partakers in this new life and that we have this regenerating work that has occurred. But Christ also, even in this day, intercedes on behalf of those same beneficiaries. In other words, Christ did not accomplish the work on the cross. He was not just simply buried and then rose again the third day and then ascended to the right hand of the Father to do nothing. He is now ever living to intercede on the behalf of all who believe. We know that Jesus Christ, before he left this earthly world, he told his disciples that he would not leave them alone. He would not leave them comfortless, but he would send them a comforter. That is the Spirit. The Spirit is now indwelling in every believer. If you are in fact a believer today, it is a 100% guarantee. If you are a true believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. We did not pray today for the Holy Spirit to come and indwell us. We did not pray today for the Holy Spirit to now show up. The Holy Spirit is already indwelling. Oftentimes we hear people say before a worship service, we say, Lord, we need the Spirit to show up. The Spirit's already here, present in every believer. Worshiping in the Spirit is not just a command, it is the only likely outcome when, gather, when people who are saved, truly believer, true believers, gather. Worship in the Spirit is the worship that occurs between those who know the person of Christ and they know the work of Christ. 
Christ is the very center of Christianity. Today, there are a lot of things that happen in churches and other types of gatherings today that are called worship services. They are called a time of worship, and at the heart of them, Christ is nowhere to be found. There's no mention of Christ. There's no mention of His person, and there's no mention of His work, but they call it a worship service. There cannot be a true worship in the Spirit without a worship of the person and the work of Christ. There are some that consider worshiping in the Spirit as a worship of the Spirit, which again, the Godhead is the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is as much God as God the Father and God the Son. But worship is not about worshiping the Spirit. It's about worshiping the person and the work of Christ. You see, Christ is that representative, and He is that picture of the Godhead. He serves as the very final revelation of who God is. If I want to know who God is, I can look to Christ and I may see God. So we understand today, as the Apostle Paul was writing and penning these words, he is putting at the very center of this, the person and the work of Christ. And you say, where is that? I don't see Christ. I only see the Spirit. I see our heart unto the Lord. I see giving thanks unto the Father. But there it is. The Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the very center and the very heart of our worship. Some people define worship as the part of the service where we sing. Some people define worship as the part where we pray. Some people determine that the worship is the part where we read the Scripture. Some people say the worship is the part where the Word of God is preached. I would submit to you that if it's all being done in the Spirit, all of that is part of the worshiping that's taking place. There is an undue emphasis in some places where the worship is just the singing. There's no doubt that Paul puts an emphasis on this speaking to yourselves and singing and making melody in your heart to God. But what's at the heart of all of what Paul is writing about here is remembering that the true worship is understanding not only the person and the work of Christ, but understanding the majesty and the glory of Christ. And when we think about His majesty and we think about the glory of Christ, that ought to lead us or compel us or drive us to sing and proclaim praises unto God. Not just today, this particular Sunday, this Lord's Day, May the 30th, but rather we proclaim these praises for all of eternity. Where does the principle of worship really come from? Well, the Lord Jesus himself in John chapter 4, this is for most of us, I think, a familiar passage. But in John 4, in verse number 19, and this is, of course, Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. And we won't expound all of this, but you realize the Lord is having a conversation with this woman, and he's, he's dealt with not her physical condition of needing the water, but more of her spiritual condition. And in verse 19 of that chapter, the woman says unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. 
Ye worship ye know not what, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you mark in your Bible, verse 24 says, must worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. This tells us that there is only one way that we are to worship God. There's only one way that is acceptable, and that worship must be in spirit and in truth. That means every aspect of worship must be based upon and must be in the truth, and all worship of believers is in the spirit. As Jesus dealt with that woman, he was dealing with a number of different things. He was dealing with her condition. Of course, he dealt with her condition of having uh, uh, nothing to drink. And he was dealing with uh, this this idea of of her husbands and how she had had uh, had five husbands. uh, But she is talking about what this true worship looks like. And true worship, folks, based upon what Paul is writing here in Ephesians 5, it must be in spirit and in truth. So as we look at these four verses this morning, I want you to notice that there are four really main statements we're going to look at as what constitutes or the characteristics of true worship. What does worshiping in the spirit look like? Or worship that is in spirit and in truth. Well, first of all, we'll look at how we must be filled with the spirit. That's verse number 18. Verse number 19 shows us that there is a speaking and a singing in the Spirit. Verse 20 shows us that there is a thanksgiving in the Spirit. And then verse 21 shows us the submission in the Spirit. So we see submission, we see thanksgiving, we see the speaking and singing, and we see the filling with the Spirit. Paul deals with a very prevalent issue of the day in verse 18 when he says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now this verse is often used as a jump-off point to determine uh, alcohol use, the right use, the wrong use. And I want to submit to you this morning that the primary text here is Paul is giving an illustration. He's giving an illustration of what is the appropriate response or what is the appropriate guidance in worship. Paul specifically deals, again, with the sin of drunkenness. Okay, He's using the sin of drunkenness and he's comparing the sin of drunkenness to the voluntary excessive drinking of any strong drink. His principle here is, is to remind them that when drunkenness occurs, the mind is disturbed, the mind is deprived of proper reasoning. Now again, uh, though wine is just being mentioned here, Paul is not just saying that wine is the issue. He's, He's talking about any strong drink, anything that has those same characteristics. And it's the excessive drinking of this, this voluntary, with the intentional purpose of bringing on this state of inebriation or this state of drunkenness. This is what Paul has in mind. The intentional drunkenness 
of an individual. Now, this drunkenness is associated also with a drunkard. The Bible uses that word drunkard. It's not a word we often use in our society today. But a drunkard is a one who is defined a drunkard by a series of actions or a course of living that demonstrates that he is in fact a drunkard. Okay? Now, this is not the main purpose of the message today. Paul is not saying that every single person who partook in wine is a drunkard. That's not what he's saying in this particular in this text. What he has in mind here is the sin of drunkenness. So he's using that to compare the sin of drunkenness with the fit being filled with the Spirit. That's the context that's happening here. We, could, we would all agree, I think, most of us would agree, that excessive drinking deprives a person of the use of their reason. It is a sin that the Bible declares that is very sinful. It's one of the works of the flesh. Drunkenness is, biblically speaking, is an abuse of the person. It is opposed to walking honestly. Okay? It is, it is a demonstration of somebody who truly is not, does not understand the grace or the true repentance of what God has done. The Bible declares that the use of excessive use of wine, the use of wine, strong drink, hurts the mind, the memory, the judgment, it deprives of reason, and even uses examples of how it sets a man who's a drunkard even below a beast. We could talk about the diseases it brings upon the body, it makes a man unfit for many types of work. But it's also described, biblically speaking, as a sin that opens the door for other sins. In other words, if a person is controlled by the excessive use of alcohol, it exposes and opens the door for every type of sin. It should be avoided. Paul is not declaring here that this isn't a verse so much about moderation or drunkenness. He's saying that this drunkenness should be avoided at all costs. This takes us to remind us in what Proverbs 23 says. If you'd like to turn to Proverbs 23, this illustrates the loss of reason, the loss of um, certain faculties, the door opening to other uh, types of sin. Proverbs, 29, or Proverbs 23, rather, verse 29, talks about this, the, the, the bite of wine. Proverbs 23, verse 29, Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. So the sin of drunkenness here, the bite of wine, showing that as that excessive use is, it, it leads and opens the door to other types of sin. So Paul has in mind here the reality of this excess. And so he compares it with 
but rather, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, if we know that we are already indwelt by the Spirit, we know that Paul is not saying, request the Spirit to come and dwell within you. There is an acknowledgement that that filling has to do with the yielding to or that filling with something that is already there. Paul is not saying pray for the Spirit to come. He is be filled with that Spirit. That is with the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit grant us? The Spirit grants us various gifts. It grants us very various graces of the Spirit. And even in the day of Paul, he had seen the Holy Spirit work in miraculous ways. He had seen things being done that were the result of this filling of the Spirit. So Paul says, instead of being filled with the wine, he says, rather be filled with the Spirit. There is a suggestion of an opposition here. It's it's as if there's one thing, but yet in opposition to that, be filled with the Spirit. Folks, we understand that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit is shed abroad in our hearts. Uh, When we we compare it to, to wine, uh, we, we are talking about the pure nature of the Spirit. We're talking about the being filled with the Spirit, having this understanding of what the Spirit is, having this understanding of I am delighted with the presence of the Spirit in my life. To be filled with the Spirit is to not only be understanding of this grace, this well of living water that is now within our souls, but we have this large measure of spiritual awareness and spiritual peace and joy. Now sadly, there are people that their source and their pursuit of joy is found in the bottle. Uh, Folks, uh, for many people, that's what they're searching after. They're trying to find joy. They're trying to find contentment. They're trying to find peace. And it seems to accomplish its goal for a short amount of time. But Paul, again, remember, he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to those Jews and those Gentiles who have now have an understanding of what it is to have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. And that is what we are to be guided by. That is what we are to be led by. Being filled, yielded, given over to an acknowledgement of who the Spirit is and what the Spirit's purpose is. Remember, the Spirit's purpose is to speak of Christ. The Spirit doesn't speak of Himself. He speaks of Christ. It is the Spirit that was reminding us today when we were singing those hymns in Christ alone. And can it be? His robes for mine. It was the Spirit as we were singing those songs that was reminding us and telling us these are songs about the person and the work of Christ. Our minds were turned to Christ. That's what the Spirit is doing. Many people are trying to find the the Spirit giving them a license to do something. The Spirit's not there to try to find a license or a loophole in our walk. The Spirit is there to point us and to remind us of the person and the work of Christ, which in response leads us to worship. That's why it's impossible to worship outside of the Spirit. People may gather to worship today, but if, unless Jesus Christ 
is their Redeemer, unless Jesus Christ is their Savior, their worship is empty, and it's no better than the sin of drunkenness that will produce some sense of spiritual, some sense of joy, but it won't last. Just like Jesus told the woman at the well, he said, you will thirst again. You will thirst again unless you have living water. That living water was a reference to the Spirit. It was a reference to having the joy of knowing Christ. Now Paul, as he uses this as a point of being filled with the Spirit, leads into verse 19, which is the response of being filled with the Spirit. So verse 18 is an opposition. Do this, don't do that. But rather, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, it is not by accident that Paul uses the word psalms. By psalms, David is meant here, the psalms of David primarily. When we think about the book of psalms, when we think about the psalms as a book of the Bible, remember, those psalms were sung. They were meant to be songs that were sung. Matter of fact, many of them are songs that are being sung even today with a reminder of who God is. You know, actually, if you sing the Psalms, you're singing a song that's inspired by God. Now, as great as the hymns are in this hymn book, and there are great hymns in this book, they're not, they're, it's not the Word of God. It, it, it's not, it is not the Bible. Now, it contains, it contains things about who God is. And it reminds us of God's majesty. It reminds us of His person. It reminds us of His work. It's, we sing about the atonement. We sing about, uh, about uh, 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 the cross. But it's not the Word of God, as good as the hymn is. So what does Paul primarily mean about speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Now again, this is not the purpose and the intent of the message this morning. But all hymns and spiritual songs and psalms are not the same. In other words, we have the idea today that I can sing something spiritual that has a spiritual meaning to it and be worshiping in the Spirit. And the reality is, is Paul is saying that the worshiping in the Spirit must be based upon the Word of God. So when Paul was encouraging the singing of the Psalms, he was encouraging those things that were inspired by God Himself. How did we get the Bible? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He, God breathed and man was moved to pen the Word of God. Which makes the Bible like no other book. Those who penned this book did not pen this book. This is not God's Word. Now, again, great hymns that remind us. We, I remember when we got this hymn book, how much we love this hymn book because of the reality and the focus it is on the person of Christ. But it's not a replacement for God's Word. This book of Psalms that Paul writes about here was meant to be the very thing in which was used that they would sing and speak to themselves about. 
Now, I know in our day and age today, we see the word hymn and we automatically associate it with what is known as the hymn. That songbook on, in front of you says hymns of grace. Paul did not have in mind at that hour, in that moment, the hymns of grace songbook. They didn't have that. What he was referring to is these hymns and these psalms and these spiritual songs were things that came from the word of God itself. It's actually very appropriate. And some churches do this to actually sing only the psalms. So there are churches that don't have a hymn book. They actually sing the psalms. Now, sometimes in our modern worship movement, people say, well, that's just kind of weird. But that's ultimately what Paul had in mind, singing actual scripture. Singing the Psalms was a reference to the book of Psalms. Spiritual songs, oftentimes I've heard this preached many times that this is supposed to be applied for our day and say, okay, you can sing the Psalms and then you have, then you have hymns and then you have spiritual songs. Paul had in mind, they were songs that were, that were worship in the spirit that was the singing of scripture. Notice what he says, and this is interesting. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Remember, sometimes worship is, is put only in the corporate environment. Well, what I mean by corporate is that, that we only worship when we come together as a group. The reality is, is we are to be worshiping 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're always to be in a spirit of worship. You know, I've told you in this, in, 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 in the years, I don't understand the idea of worship leaders. I don't, I don't under, in my mind, it doesn't comprehend. I don't, I, it just doesn't, I don't comprehend that need. Because when we come together, we are worshiping. And if we're all in Christ, we're worshiping in the spirit together, but we don't prepare to worship because we've already been worshiping. Our mind should have already been, already been in a place of worship because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes my worship is speaking and singing to myself. But notice the emphasis is speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. We know that, and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper today in one of the accounts of the Lord's Supper. The Bible says that the Lord, after they had partaken of the supper, they went out and they sang a hymn. Well, that hymn that, was, that he was talking about was one of the Psalms. So in general, we have this idea that the Psalms, which our Lord sang with his disciples, is called a hymn. And so the Psalms in general that are called hymns and songs and hymns or songs and praises are spiritual songs. Really, folks, all of this is leading us to the idea that Paul was talking about the Psalms of David. Again, it doesn't mean that we can't sing these hymns. It doesn't mean that we can't use resources that remind us of the person and the work of Christ. But do you know the greatest thing you can speak to yourself and the greatest thing you can sing to yourself is the Word of God. Now I'm saying that because we fall enamored with worship that is based upon maybe a popular hymn or a popular song. When in reality, the greatest thing we can worship and meditate on is the Word of God itself. Folks, it, it, is, it has happened 
in churches all across the world where instead of the centrality being the preaching of the word, the music ministry has taken over to where it becomes, that's the reason we go. You know, let's, let's sing 15 songs and give the preacher five or six minutes to give us a little devotional to send us on our way. And we leave and we say, we've worshiped. Again, I'm not against music. We, we have music here. We, I'm not against it at all. I'm just saying, Paul did not have in mind that the primary thing to do now for worship is singing songs. He was talking about that worship in the Spirit is going to have all of these elements to it. But he's also reminding us here that the Psalms, there's a, a, a specific direction with that Paul writes here because the Psalms are opposed to those things which the world calls songs or the things which the world does. Remember the contrast between be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit is not unrelated to speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody. You can't separate the two thoughts. Okay, does everybody, everybody follow what I'm saying? Paul's given this as the, he's given this as the background. And he's telling us that there is an opposition directly to what is and what, what should be and what should not be. And so Paul, by saying, instead of being drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Instead of singing hymns and songs that have nothing to do with the things of God, sing the hymns and sing the psalms. The intention of Paul here is that these songs and these spiritual songs and these hymns really is related to the next phrase, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Paul distinguishes singing as something distinct. He distinguishes it from singing. He distinguishes it from the giving of thanks. This is, this is not some mental praising of God. No, he actually says singing and making melody in your hearts to God. It's called singing. It's different from speaking. It's different from teaching. It's different from admonishing. But it is a praising of God with a voice. We've done that today. We've praised God with our voice. When the heart and the voice agree, there is a praising of God. A melody in the heart is a voice that agrees with the truth. A melody in the heart as well as a song that is on the lips, is singing from the heart or singing with grace. In other words, when we sing these hymns, when we sing these spiritual songs, we're singing from a place of knowledge. We're singing from a place of understanding. It is not possible for an unbeliever to even pick up an uninspired book like this and fully be able to comprehend who Christ is. We pick up, we, and this is one of the things that's always, when we, when we sing these hymns, we're singing with understanding. We're singing because it's not because we're enamored with the words on the page, it's because we have an understanding of who God is and His majesty. And this is another way that's reminding us of who He is. 
And that melody in the heart is, is the voice that we're singing agreeing with the understanding of who God is. So the only way to worship in the Spirit is to worship with understanding of the person and the work of Christ. The world looks at spiritual songs, hymns, psalms, and doesn't understand the value. Paul is speaking to primarily believers. You can't tell an unbeliever to go out and worship the Lord. You shouldn't expect an unbeliever to worship God. You shouldn't expect that coworker, that classmate, whatever the situation is, to worship the God that you know if they do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We, if we truly allow ourselves to meditate on the things of God, okay, and again, this hymn book's not the inspired book, but it brings us to remembrance. And if we cannot, if we truly allowed ourselves to sing the hymns and sing the psalms and sing them that way with true reverence and humility, I believe we would probably be brought to tears every time we sang a hymn because we're reminded of who God is. The intention of the singing of the hymns is not to bring an emotional experience to us. As a matter of fact, making melody in your heart, I might not actually see the response of worship. It may not be outwardly. It may not be something that everybody else can see. There's an emphasis here, making melody in your heart to the Lord, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But yet someone might say, we didn't have a very good worship service today because people just didn't seem to respond. That's not what Paul has in mind here. You can, you can get a room to respond to something. That doesn't mean that they're truly worshiping. You can get a room of people to have an outward appearance of, we get what we're singing, but do they really understand what it is to sing with knowledge? Now again, this little portion of Scripture has always struck me because it's so different than the topics that Paul normally deals with. Paul normally is our doctrinal guy, isn't he? He's the guy that's given us the thick theology of justification and sanctification. This almost seems like Paul has stepped out of something he doesn't normally talk about, but yet it's something so simple but yet it's so misunderstood in our churches today. What is worship? And yet, here Paul talks about it. To sing with grace is to sing with gratitude. It's to make melody in our heart with thankfulness. It's to exercise the grace that's been given to us. The end of all of our worship should be the glory of God, not an emotional experience. God's glory is the end. God's glory is the the reason why we do what we do. But then that leads Paul into the third element of worshiping in the Spirit. It's thanksgiving in the Spirit. Look what Paul says, giving thanks always for all things unto God. Thanking God for things that are temporal. Thanking God for our life. Thanking God for preserving our life. Thanking Him for the mercies of life, the simple things that we take for granted. But it's also thanking God for the spiritual things. Thanking God for Christ. Thanking God for all the spiritual blessings that come. 
Thanking God for His election of you. Thanking God for His redemption of you. Thanking God through Christ for His sanctification, His adoption, His pardoning, His justifying grace, and making you fit for heaven and for eternal life. Those are things worthy of thanking God for. But notice what he says, giving thanks always for all things. That means we're also to thank God even in times of adversity. We're to thank God even in times when we feel abandoned and deserted. We're to thank God even when we feel temptation is as strong as it's ever been. We're to thank God in persecution as well as in prosperity. Notice Paul says, unto God and the Father, we offer this thanks unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thanking God for who He is. We're thanking for God that He is the Father of mercies. He's the Father of all creation. But primarily, He's the Father of Christ. And all of the elect who are in Christ are part of that sonship. You see, Paul is not... He's so careful to be sure that all of this is done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ we would have nothing to be thankful for. Temporal, spiritually. All of those things come through Christ for His sake. Remember, we can have a self-centered theology that thinks all this is being done for us. All of these blessings that we receive, even our very election, is being done for the sake of Christ, not for our sake first and foremost. Our salvation is not primarily for us first. It's for the glory of God and it's for the sake of Christ. Folks, when you get yourself out of the way and we get rid of our self-centered theology, we're brought to this place where we truly understand and acknowledge when we sing songs like we've sung this morning. Those are not self-centered hymns. Those are hymns that always look upward. They're always looking to Christ. And they're always based upon the truth of Jesus Christ. Not upon any other means in which we thank God. We thank God because of who we are and what we have in Christ. One of the ways in which we do this, Paul has shown us, is that this praise and this thanksgiving can be done through the matter of these psalms, these hymns, and these spiritual songs. So every song that we sing, we sing with thanksgiving. To the end, the glory of God, by giving thanks to God. And then verse 21, often we don't think about this in worship, submission. Submission is a difficult word. It's a word that people don't like. To submit, submitting ourselves one to another. We submit ourselves in a temporal sense. Maybe we can use this term, may not be the best word, in a political sense. We give honor, we give obedience to civil authorities. Why? Because they're set up by God for the good of men. Do we agree with them all the time? No. But God set them up, God sets them up, God brings them down. We submit unto them. In a domestic sense, the Bible talks about wives submitting to themselves to their own husbands. This is, this is not a bad thing, folks. This is the way God ordained it to be. Wives are are submitted to the husband. Children are submitted to their parents. Paul goes on later to talk about servants being submissive to their masters. We're subject to one another. Submitted to one another. 
submitted to the, for the honor and for the glory of Christ, being yielded to the doctrines of God, to the precepts. To, we're, we're agreeing together that the Word of God is what it claims to be. God gives us servants in the church, pastors, elders, not to be dictators, but to help point us to the truth of who God is. And yet, we are to submit one to another. To submit to another means we have to be willing to submit to the weaknesses of another. We have to be willing to submit to the admonition of another. It, part of worship is being able to, to, to look at one another and be so concerned for each other's well-being that we're willing to, to listen when someone else admonishes us in a way that's meant to help us. We don't think about that being a part of worship. Worship's just when the people start singing, isn't it? No, Paul connects worship and submission. See, I think this is the hard one. I think we could all agree, yeah, I can sing a hymn. I can give thanks to God. But what about our submission? It's going to be important because next week when we start dealing with the instructions for marriage, submission's right there at the very heart of it. And yet, submission is the very difficult thing because we have excuses as to why. But notice what Paul says. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Why are we to submit one to one another in the fear of God? The cause of our submission is the fear of God. Submission is because we fear God. It's consistent with who God is. The fear of God is that which should influence Every other thing that we do. Why do I submit to authority that I don't always agree with? Because of the fear of God. Why do I submit in my own home to a spouse? Because of the fear of God. Why do we submit to one another in the church? Because of the fear of God. Christ is the head of the church. Not the pastor, not the elders. Christ is the head of the church. And if Christ is the head, when we fail to submit, you're not failing to submit to the pastor or the elders, you're failing to submit to Christ. Now sometimes we get this all messed up. Pastors get offended and people get offended because they're not doing what they want them to do. But folks, remember, true worship is only in spirit and truth and it must be based upon the person of Christ and the work of Christ. That fear of God, not only is he the head of the church, he is to be feared, he is to be reverenced. There should be submission to one another because of the love of Christ constrains us to this. It compels us to this. So to worship in the Spirit are people who have the Holy Spirit. They are people who have the joy and are controlled and dominated by the Spirit as opposed or in the same manner as wine controls and dominates the drunkard. That wine, that drunkard does everything he does because he's controlled by that excess. Paul's point is, is we're supposed to be so controlled and dominated by the Spirit that these, this is the result. We are, when the Spirit dwells within us, and our hearts are dwelling and thinking upon the goodness and mercy of God, we are left singing melody, making melody in our hearts to God. We cheer ourselves 
We encourage ourselves in the thing of God. And yet, all these mercies, whether they're temporal, whether they're spiritual, they come from the Father through the Son. We praise God for the mercies that we have in Christ and we continually praise God for who He is and what He's done. If we can thank God for His electing love. We thank God for His redeeming grace. We thank God for eternal life. Something I never thought we'd see in our generation. I'm so thankful to have Christian fellowship again and fellowship that we don't realize how much we need it until it's gone for a little while. But we're thankful for even the little things. We're thankful for the, for the food on our table. We're thankful for the affliction God sends in our life. We're thankful for the trials. You know, to murmur and complain against the very providential hand of God is in itself is a sin. It doesn't say it's easy. God's providences are difficult to understand and they're difficult to fully comprehend. But we also know that everything God is doing is doing it for His glory. Christ is the sovereign head of the church. He is to be feared. He's the one that delegates authority, not just in the home or in the church, but he's the one that delegates authority in the world. In the fear of the Lord, there is a reverence for him and for his glory. We submit ourselves to the authority of Christ. We do that because of our love for Christ. Paul, really, the rest of this chapter, the rest of this chapter and into chapter 6, Paul primarily deals with the aspect of worship that is submission. It's really remarkable that almost a whole other chapter is going to be dedicated just to the proper submission because of who Christ is. So next week we'll begin looking at the last portion of chapter 5. We won't get through it all. Too many, too many truths we're going to cover. But we'll begin dealing with that first part of that submission as Paul deals with this, the instructions for marriage. So look forward to that next week. This being the last Sunday of the month, we didn't observe it last uh, month, but we will be observing the Lord's Supper today. And so we would invite you, and if you know Christ as your Savior, uh, you have repented and you have believed on Christ uh, alone for your salvation. Uh, we would invite you to partake with us. We would instruct you to examine yourself uh, to be sure that you are in the Lord. Uh, examine yourself to the extent also that, uh, that uh, you are drinking and partaking in a worthy manner. Um, in a moment, we'll have uh, the elements will be distributed to you. Uh, they're all, they are being distributed in a one package still. So when you receive the cup, you'll have the cup with the bread in the top. Uh, so you can just pull the top and we'll, we will partake together. So be sure that we'll be sure everyone has been served before we observe today. Um, so we will be looking before we uh, distribute at Luke 22 this morning. So if you want to turn to Luke 22.